Our reading from God's Word this morning comes from Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Just two verses. Would you follow us as we read from God's Word? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, this is the body of, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. And good morning, Christ Church family. Guests, delight to see you this morning. Just a couple of housekeeping things that I need to mention up front. The first one is that our disaffiliation vote will take place Sunday, October 30th beginning at 9.45 a.m. in Seabrook. And want to once again remind you, as I said last week, that disaffiliation is not disaffiliate or disaffiliation's sake, that disaffiliation is unto something. So just want to validate that. The second thing that I want to do, uh, many of you know I'm from Alabama. <laughs> All right. And I want to say congratulations to the Tennessee Volunteers, all right? You prevented me from bringing a cigar into the pulpit this morning, but in all seriousness, congratulations. So let's take a moment to pray. Lord, uh, the scripture tells us laughter is good medicine. Thank you that we can have moments of levity as well as moments of sobriety in the spirit and we pray now as we go into this journey in your word that, Lord, you would aid our sober thinking and that we would be engaged by you, the living Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have seen the movie Dunkirk and you've read the story in 1940 when 350,000 Allied troops their backs are against the English Channel. The Nazi troops have um, pursued them and they recognize that they are potentially going to perish unless there is a rescue. And so fear falls all over the nation of England as Hitler's armies poise or poised to destroy Allied forces. Well, in the midst of this, uh, and this was not in the movie, but a part of the story, Allied troops flashed a message in Morse code to the English people, and it went like this, three words, and if not, and if not. And in that era of history, the British people instantly recognized what that message meant. Even if we are not rescued from Hitler's army, we are standing strong. And the phrase, and if not, was found in the book of Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defied Nebuchadnezzar that we will not bow down. We will put our trust in Almighty God. And that message, those three words, galvanized the British people. And Thousands of boats, as you know the story, set out across the English Channel, uh, citizens of England, and there to rescue their own army, and they succeeded. As we note, 350,000 troops were saved. Now, here's what I want you to think about this morning. The British people in that era of history were so steeped in Christian understanding, they were in the habit of reading their Bibles, that they immediately 
grasp the meaning of that cryptic biblical illusion or illusion, and if not. Now, just think, think with me. Can you imagine that kind of response in 2022 America to such a message? Most would not have a clue as to what it means. Recent surveys indicate that only a small percentage of North Americans can even name the Ten Commandments. Only 42% of them can even identify who preached the Sermon on the Mount. And a significant of that 42% think that the Sermon on the Mount was something about some guy preaching on a horse. A third of Americans who attend Protestant church, churches regularly, 32% say they read their Bible personally every day. That's alarming. Around a quarter, 27% say they read it a few times a week. And here recently, the American Bible Study, excuse me, Bible Society gave their report on the state of the Bible in North America, and they shared some statistical data that's just hard to believe. Here it is. The data said roughly 26 million people had mostly or completely stopped reading the Bible coming out of COVID. Is that not just stunning? Uh, This was the data coming out of last year. Now, here's a question for us. Why does this matter? Well, it matters for a thousand reasons. But relevant to our topic this morning, when we're going to explore the following, the church as the bride of Christ, that many do not see the significance or the correlation of this grand theme. On the day that I married Missy, I was still a relatively new Christian. I didn't realize that marriage was reflecting deeper spiritual realities that are mentioned all over Scripture. I didn't understand the significance and symbolism related to the Bible, beginning with a marriage with Adam and Eve, and seeing it end with a marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. I was clueless that marriage between a man and a woman is designed by God to actually point to the eternal mystery of Jesus Christ and his church. And I was clueless that the covenant, not the commodity, I'll come back to that in a minute, I was clueless that the covenant of marriage, not the commodity that I was entered into, was intended by the creator of the universe to portray the church as the bride of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. Now, all of you know I'm a full-time pastor, right? But I have a problem. And the problem is, is that I cry at weddings. It's a terrible problem. Loved ones, I've been doing weddings for decades, and there are oftentimes, Missy will tell you, there are oftentimes when I'm in the middle of a wedding and I'm struggling to get through it because I'm, I'm crying, that the bride reaches over and pats me, just says, you're going to make it faster. I cry because of what I understand, what I've grown to understand through the scriptures, through the years, that marriage is a covenant that points to the ultimate covenant of Jesus and his church. I cry because Jesus speaks of himself repeatedly in scripture as the bridegroom in the church, as the bride of Christ. Let me just give a few examples this morning. Mark 2, 18 through 20. How is it, the question's asked, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answers this way. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast? when he's with them. They cannot so long as they have him with them. By the time, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. But I'm also deeply moved because others speak of Jesus as the bridegroom. John the Baptist, he, you yourselves in John 3 can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. 
the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bride, to the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now complete. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. And I am moved by the fact that this is not a revelation that just appears a few times in Scripture. This is a revelation that appears over a hundred times in Scripture in some form or fashion. The reality that the church of Jesus Christ, you and me, those in Christ, who are indeed betrothed and promised and intended to be a bride to her husband, Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul, picking up on this theme, would write in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. This is why the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, in the broader context of the passage that Ken read, this, these words, husbands, love your wives just as... That's right, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is the power of what the blood of Christ does, loved ones. But let's drop down to the 31st verse that Ken read in its greater context. And this is when Paul says these words, this is a profound mystery, but I'm not talking merely about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And we see in the scripture, as I've said to you for many weeks now, that we see where history is headed and we see the imagery of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride illustrating this history in passages like Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Vast segments of the Christian church are unaware of the glorious calling of the church as the bride of Christ. And this truth didn't start in the New Testament. It began in the Old Testament thousands of years ago. It's been God's plan all along. Just like when the Bible opens in Genesis with describing that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall be one. But we see again, even in the book of Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Or Isaiah 62, 3 through 5, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God also speaks to his people in the book of Hosea with a similar theme. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And then, loved ones, it's okay to read the Bible in church, right? Here we go. Moving back to the New Testament, we see the parable of the ten virgins, all of them representing the church of Jesus Christ, and yet they are described as the bride waiting for the bridegroom. These are not minor themes found in the Bible. This is a major theme found in the Bible. Salt and pepper permeating the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. When I was about 14 years old, my brother and I just looking to get into a little bit of adventure. He was about 11 or 12 years old. And I, I um, said to mom, my brother and I said, hey, mom, um, we want to take the fishing boat across the lake and gas it up. We lived on Lake Gunnersville. And we just want to gas it up. It was about a three and a half mile ride straight across the lake at a marina. Well, I mean, the tank was 
three quarters full. We just, just, we just wanted to go out on an adventure. We were boys. And my mom looked at us and said, okay, wear your life jackets and be back uh, within the hour because there's a storm coming this afternoon. She had seen the weather report. And so we pile into the boat. We go across the lake. We get over to the marina. And it's not long before a 14-year-old boy and an 11-year-old boy were distracted. We're looking at boats, we're climbing on the jetties, we are fishing, we're buying Cokes and chips at the marina store, and after we've been there a while, I hear thunder in the distance. Now, some of you are familiar with the Tennessee Valley. Some of you in this sanctuary may even be familiar with Lake Gunnersville, but in the Tennessee Valley, when wind and a storm get stirred up, the, that lake becomes like an ocean. You can have white caps, uh, two, almost three, maybe two and a half feet high, and it can be very dangerous. Many people have drowned in storms on that lake out of their naivete. And so I've got my baby brother with me. I hear thunder, and I crank the motor, and I start heading home. And when we're about halfway home, coming straight across the lake, the bottom falls out. Lightning begins to flash thunder and rain. You know what torrential rain looks like when it's just coming down in sheets and the waves on that lake begin to stir up and there's water, white cap, coming into the boat and the water's coming down and I'm doing everything that I know to do to get my brother and I home. He's taking a bucket. He's bailing as we're moving slowly across the lake in, in an effort just to navigate the storm. And I, even though I, can, I can't see well in in all the torrential downfall fall of water, I can see my mom a mile away at the boat dock and undercover at the boathouse, and, and I know exactly what she's doing. She's praying, and she's interceding for her two boys that she knows are in danger. Well, we work our way, and we thank God we make it to the boathouse. Now, my mom... Missy will tell you, was a strong disciplinarian. And when we were getting out of that boat, I thought, oh, Lord, we're, we're in deep trouble. We got out of that boat. All my mom did was put her arms around her two sons and hold them and weep with joy. A church... This revelation of the church being the bride of Christ is not minor. It's torrential. It's an image that God, based upon Scripture, would want his people to be drenched in. And it's unto something. It's unto the reunion of the bride with the bridegroom being embraced in the midst of our identity and who and whose we are in Jesus Christ. But because we've allowed the meaning of marriage to be diminished in this hour, because we have viewed marriage oftentimes as a commodity, as a way of meeting our own needs rather than a covenant, we have failed to see the beauty of what marriage is intended to be. And in the process, many have failed to see that marriage is a symbol and an icon that points to a deeper reality of Jesus as the bride groom and the church as the bride. Now, you may ask, pastor, when you use this word commodity, what exactly do you mean? 
Well, our culture trains us in a way of seeing marriage merely as a, a commodity. Think about some of the old, just pop songs. I, I don't know all the new ones. I'm just, okay, but, but think about some of the historical pop songs. You know, you think about that old love song, you're my, I'm not going to try to sing it, it'd be terrible. You're my everything, and everything is you. Or the Righteous Brothers, baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. Or that song, You Make Me Feel. And the point is, is what happens in the process of how we romanticize relationships and including falling in love, what happens is that we can look at marriage merely as a commodity. This is a way of getting my needs met. It's much deeper than that according to God's way of expressing this bridal terminology. You see, when, you get, when those of you that get married, you enter a Christian marriage, you enter a covenant. And this covenant is characterized by unique characteristics. One of those is agape love. Agape love is God's love. And agape love is different from other types of love. You see, agape love is self-sacrificial love. I will sacrifice for the other. And this is characteristic of a covenant. When we enter into a covenant, it's an agreement with God and one another of what we're entering into. And it's a self-sacrificing relationship. This is a part of why when we read a moment ago, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's sacrificing. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. What did Jesus do for the church? He died for her. Husbands, set your own needs aside and love her sacrificially. It's part of the covenant. We, we also see in that passage, we didn't read it a moment ago, but wives, respect. Some of your Bibles say, honor your husband. And, and the, a part of the imagery, it doesn't, let me, let me put it this way, I need to say this. It doesn't mean your husband won't make a knucklehead decision on occasion. That's not what the scripture's teaching. He's human, two human beings. But what, what, what the picture is, is that, that God is seeking to mold us into the image of Jesus and a culture of honor is what's happening in the Trinity. You see, the Son is going, oh, look at the Father. Oh, look at the Son. The Holy Spirit is going, oh, honor the Son, honor the Father. You see, this mutual honoring that's going on in the Godhead and part of what's happening in the covenant of marriage is that there's a mutual sacrifice, there's a mutual honoring that's taking place, not in the commodification of marriage, but in the covenant of I am committed to one who transcends both of us, who's greater than us, and I bring this quality into the relationship in how we serve one another. By the way, sometimes people get hung up where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. I just remind you to make sure you read that whole text and don't just cherry pick the one text because the text says in the preceding verses that we are to submit to one another all of us, to function with a sense of mutual submission, esteeming others better than ourselves. But you see, loved ones, this is the distinction between covenant and commodity. Three weeks ago, I did a wedding in Mississippi. And the family asked me to take a moment and share a homily as a part of the wedding ceremony. I get asked to do that from time to time. And so I, I, I paused at one point and I said this, and I'm not gonna use real names here. We'll call him John. I said, John, as you enter this covenant, Jane 
will not complete you. Asking another human being to complete you is asking too much of another human being. And I said, Jane, as you enter into this covenant with John, John will not complete you because asking another individual to complete you is asking too much from another human being. Jesus will complete you. Remember, he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, will be faithful to bring it to completion. As you both look to Jesus and appropriate agape love in your own hearts, as you enter not a commodity, but as you enter this covenant, your marriage will thrive because it's based upon a covenant of sacrifice and love that demonstrates itself in practical ways. It's a covenant, not a commodity, but also Marriage is a mirror of the new covenant in ways that go beyond just what's obvious on the surface. And that is, I would illustrate it this way. You, you, I don't expect you to remember everything that I say. Please know that I'm a realist. But a couple of months ago, I, I shared a New Testament passage that makes me tremble. There, there are many passages in the Bible that make me tremble. And one of them is Jesus' words when there's this group of people talking to him and they say, Jesus, we did a lot of ministry in your name. Uh, we delivered people from evil. We cast out demons in your name. Uh, we healed in your name. I mean, just, just like ministry you, where you would go, well, obviously Jesus is among you. And, and, and Jesus says this, depart from me. I never knew you. That makes me tremble. And I reminded you that the Greek word for know there is the Greek word gnosko. It's the same, it's the same Greek word that's used in the New Testament when the Bible says Joseph did not know Mary. He had not be, been intimate with her to conceive a child. Jesus was born of a virgin. And so we recognize this word represents intimacy but be mindful that as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are intimately aligned together, that they produce births. <laughs> Let us make man in our own image. And what we see in Scripture in this imagery of covenant is that intimacy births things. And it's not merely true physically, but husband and a wife, but it's also true spiritually between Jesus as the bridegroom and the church. Loved ones, sometime in the 1950s, I don't remember the exact date, I've been studying it a bit, there were those who can, God conceived in his heart the birth of Christ Church Memphis. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. But somebody was hearing God and Jesus built his church. Glory to God. Let, let me share one example. When Missy and I were interviewed to become the new pastor here, the new senior pastor here at Christ Church Memphis. Um, we were, I was interviewed on Zoom, and then the interview team also did uh, an 8.15 in the morning to 9.30 at night. So just want you to know, your interview team, they're thorough, okay? <laughs> but in that interview, toward the end of the evening, I shared this story when I was asked a question. Missy and I were in India over a decade ago. And there was a leader there that asked if we would have breakfast with him. And the next morning we got up and met this leader, this Christian leader in the nation of India. And he said this to us. He said, Paul, Missy, you know 
about the missionary out of Australia and his two boys that were burned alive in the car by Hindu militants for sharing the gospel. You know about that. I said, I do. I grieve it deeply. And then he went on to say, you know about the 200 plus martyrs in Orissa State that the Hindu militants killed and, and in an effort to squash the church. You know about that. I said, I do. I grieve it deeply. We were at a restaurant not terribly far from there. And then he said this to us. He said, those martyrs had kids, children, and we have them, and we need help. Will you help us? And I said, without hesitation, absolutely, we will help you. When we get back to Birmingham, I will share this with our church family, and we will help, absolutely. And uh, that unfolded, but we went to bed that night, had some time of prayer, and then put our heads on the pillow, and around 4 a.m., I woke up. Jet-lagged a little bit, I woke up. Now, I can't speak for your experience, but this is mine. There are times when one experiences the manifest presence of God, when you're pursuing God, you're worshiping God, you're magnifying God. But there are these rare times in my life where you're done doing none of the above and you've been communing with him regularly, but he just chooses to come in some way. Well, I wake up at 4 a.m. and the presence of God was manifest. The Holy Spirit drew near. And as the Holy Spirit drew near, I could sense God in that hotel room that, that I just paused and I began to weep heavy, heavy. And I'm weeping for these kids. And I can feel the heart of God in my heart. My God. And as I'm weeping, Missy wakes up. And she sits up in bed and she begins to weep. She gets up and stands up, moves around the bed and comes and sits in my lap. And she's weeping. We're both crying heavy. I know why she's crying. She knows why I'm crying. And not a word has been spoken. And that's how God birthed ministry to orphans around the world in our lives. That's how we ended up building two homes for children, rescuing them out of human trafficking in Thailand in honor of my late mom. I'll share that story at another time. But that was the birthmark. But here's what I'm saying. It, it ebbed and flowed out of intimacy with Christ. He birthing initiatives in and through our lives. And I know in a crowd this size that this is also true of many of you, that you've had things that God has conceived in your heart out of intimacy with Christ. And I want to love on you and say, you're not crazy. Know that, that as he speaks to you, sometimes things that are so much bigger than you are and they're conceived, move with him. But I also want to encourage you that this image of marriage and Jesus as the bride, that we are designed for intimacy with Jesus as the bridegroom. And in intimacy, things get conceived for the glory of God. Listen to this quote from Tim Tennant. The church has often failed to disciple people in an understanding of the design and purpose of marriage, and many Christians widely embrace societal views of marriage as a means for personal fulfillment. Marriage exists to make you happy. 
or so we are told. It is a legal arrangement that allows two people to fulfill each other's individual emotional and sexual needs and desires. Western culture places high value on freedom, personal autonomy, and finding emotional fulfillment, and the culture has domesticated marriage to fit within that larger utilitarian framework. So many of the problems we face today are rooted in this cultural redefinition of marriage, and because many Christians have unwittingly accepted the wider culture's understanding of marriage, we have little room to maneuver in our debates and discussions. Once we accept a functionalistic, commodity-driven, utilitarian view of marriage, we no longer have solid ground on which to stand in opposing a whole range of relationships that might be called marriage. We cannot accept marriage as a commodity when it is a covenant. And the two are very different. And this is why the Apostle Paul would say, In Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. He's quoting Jesus. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a covenant. The covenant of marriage is painting a a picture of a higher covenant. Church as the bride, Jesus as the bridegroom. This is why, as we circle back to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. This is why history will culminate in this way. Revelation 21.2, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is why God would inspire Jesus and John to collaborate in writing the book of Revelation in this way. In Revelation 19, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Take a moment and just try to imagine the grandeur and hearing these words out of angelic beings. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of God and if not you see if this is true if what if what I'm sharing with you if it's true ultimately it's not about who you are it's about whose you are Jesus just as there was a betrothal period in biblical times during which the bride and the groom were separated until the wedding, so was the bride of Christ separate from her bridegroom during the church age. Her responsibility during the betrothal period is to be faithful to him. Now, loved ones, before we close in a couple of hours, God even used the life of the marriage of his prophet, Hosea, to deliver a powerful message to the people of God regarding unfaithfulness. You may remember the story. Hosea's wife, Gomer, was unfaithful to her husband, returning to a life of prostitution. So God felt betrayed by that, what that symbol was illustrating. The symbol was Israel's infidelity, chasing after other loves and God not being their first love. So even though Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had not yet come to redeem the earth, God was already using the symbolism of a broken marriage in relationship to communicate with us. 
I was the senior pastor of Christ Church Birmingham for 15 years. Many of those years, at 1 o'clock every Sunday, in the last service, there were 20 to 30 former prostitutes that worshiped with us every Sunday that were part of a human trafficking ministry that Missy and I and many members of the church were involved in. I cannot put into words the joy through the years of watching God redeem people out of the darkest places and seeing the power of the gospel forgive and cleanse and renew and restore and sharing in moments of baptism very similar that we shared in this morning and hearing testimony of the movement of Jesus in the lives of people who are often abused as children which set them up for the emotional vulnerability of being manipulated in traffic in a very, very dark world. But I will also never forget the day that an upper middle class businessman walks up to me with tears in his eyes and he says, Paul, I've watched Jesus move in the lives of these human trafficking victims now for some time. And I think many of them have something I don't. I don't have that kind of joy in the Lord that I see in many of them. I want what they have. I want to remind you once again of a story I told you right here just a few weeks ago. There's a woman at Jesus' feet and she's wetting his feet with her tears because her heart feels pure for the first time in her life. She knows deep down she is completely forgiven. And she has received mercy from the creator of the universe. And she's taking her hair and cleansing his feet. And there's a religious man there. His name is Simon. And Simon has this thought that goes through his mind. If Jesus knew what kind of woman was touching him, he would make her stop. And the scripture says, and Jesus, knowing his thoughts, that'll mess with you. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, asked him a question. Simon, who loves more? The person who's been forgiven little or the person who's been forgiven much? Common sense question. Simon gives a common sense answer. Why the person who's forgiven much? But there's a tragedy in the story. The tragedy is that Simon thinks Jesus is talking about the woman. Jesus isn't talking about the woman. Jesus is talking about Simon. Simon thinks his sin is just a little thing. He thinks her sin is worse than his own sin. And because Simon can't see his own need for mercy and the rest his own need for the restoration of coming to his first love of the bridegroom as God had designed him, Simon doesn't love very much and the story illustrates how he has little love because he doesn't think he needs a lot of forgiveness. 
And if we're not careful, we can all be like Simon. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that anyone, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but anyone who turns to him in faith. And as it says in another place in Scripture, confesses their sin, that God is faithful and he's just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. That word confession means come into agreement with God. Don't make excuses. Don't say, Lord, it's this woman you gave me or the man. Lord, I take responsibility for what's going on in me. And I agree with you, God, and I confess it, and I'm going to turn my back on that. And I'm surrendering to you. You see, the bride is supposed to be surrendered to the bridegroom. And that's why we would say this imagery is not minor league in Scripture. It's major. We are intended to be the bride of Christ individually and collectively. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment before we offer worship through song? I want to remind you this morning before I pray, I simply want to remind you of God's nature. God is holy, and sin separates you from a holy God. But I also want to remind you that God is merciful. He is merciful. In fact, the scripture says there's a brand new mercy in God's heart today. And I want to remind you that perhaps today as you, as the bride of Christ, would renew your first love. That in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. So I encourage you to turn to him in your heart and receive his mercy and allow him through his shed blood to wipe your heart clean so that you're clothed in white like his bride through his shed blood. So Lord, all around this sanctuary, those that are listening online, we pray that you draw us. Help us to repent of what we need to repent of, let go of. Help us to surrender what needs to be surrendered because we recognize you're worthy and we pray it in the name and power of Jesus. Amen.